Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As I'm sure that many uh, listeners know, for the past couple of decades, so much of the fight over U.S. broadband policy has revolved around questions on net neutrality. But going back to the very beginning of that debate, I've always argued that the fight over net neutrality was really treating the symptoms rather than the root causes of the dysfunction in U.S. broadband policy. All the way back in 2005, which I think is the earliest time I wrote about this, I wrote an article entitled, Network Neutrality Wouldn't Really Matter If There Were Real Competition. And I continue to stand by that argument to some extent. I think that if we had actual broadband competition, a lot of the debate over net neutrality would sort of fall away because nobody would be able to get away with the kind of nefarious activity that that leads people to want net neutrality. And so the only reason that we really needed net neutrality enshrined in some form or another was because of the incredibly limited number of options for getting broadband access in the U.S., and that allowed those incumbent providers to engage in all sorts of sketchy behavior from jacking up prices constantly to adding hidden fees to potentially engaging in all sorts of other questionable behaviors around throttling or blocking or favoring certain content and services over others. Unfortunately, almost no attention seems to be paid on the policy side to the competition question. Instead, the battle is almost always just about net neutrality with it sort of ping-ponging back and forth, depending on, you know, which party was in power. And so, in fact, it's sort of become this dumb partisan football and that's true even as a majority of the public, Republicans and Democrats alike, have made it very, very clear that they actually support net neutrality and the concepts of net neutrality, and they would like to see it in place. Anyways, it has frustrated me to no end that over those last two decades, there's been so little discussion about actual ways to solve the lack of competition in the space. And that's why I'm really thrilled that this week we're able to release a new report from us at the Copia Institute and written by Carl Bode, uh, entitled Just a Click Away, Broadband Competition in America, which lays out how there's actually, I believe, a pretty straightforward solution to much of the competition questions on broadband. And there are actually a few communities uh, seeing it put in place today, but I think it needs to spread much more widely. And that answer is to embrace open access wholesale fiber, uh, which, as I said, is is showing up in a few areas, but should be more widely understood and also hopefully embraced. So today on the podcast, we have Carl to talk about the paper and to talk about open access wholesale fiber and why it's so compelling. So welcome, Carl. Hey there. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Sure. And uh, before we get in we get into the deeper discussion. I did just want to note a quick thanks to the Knight Foundation for its support, which helped enable us to produce this uh, excellent paper. So, Carl, uh, let's start by laying out the general problem as you see it. I mean, I sort of talked about broadband competition, but uh, what, what would you say is the current state of broadband competition in the U.S. right now? 
so it depends who you ask. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 core, the core underlying problem is that the United States government doesn't actually know fully where broadband is or isn't available. Uh, you know, they've allowed regional monopolies to kind of heavily dominate different parts of the country, resulting in, I think, 83 million Americans live under a monopoly. You know, millions more live under a duopoly. And and even there, you know, it's kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod form of competition where they both kind of gently nudge prices higher using fees and and sneaky stuff. And that lack of competition is apparent everywhere from, you know, privacy violations to net neutrality violations to higher prices. And, you know, I think the broadband industry is rated amongst, has the lowest customer satisfaction ratings of any industry in America. Hmm. And most government agencies, including the IRS, you have to stop. <laughs> yeah, you have to stop for a second and truly take that in. The fact that this this industry has the lowest satisfaction ratings of any industry. They beat the banks. They beat insurance. They beat you know, <laughs> and the airlines. That is a feat. And you have to ask what they've done to accomplish that. And the the answer is generally monopolization and consolidation. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's. it's just, I was going to say it's 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 difficult to find anyone who, uh, you know, happily. Uh, embraces their own broadband provider, with a very few exceptions, including myself, because I have I have Sonic, and and Sonic is amazing. We've had yeah. Dane, Dane Jasper on the podcast before, um, and so people know. But that's like very much the exception to the rule. I think most yeah. people just cannot stand their their broadband provider. You know, I'm here in Silicon Valley North, quote unquote. You know, <laughs> in in Seattle, considered you know maybe the second or third top tier tech city in the country, right. and my only broadband option is Comcast. Capped, yeah. a capped Comcast line, you know, uh, with usage charges and or usage fees and the customer service that makes everybody cringe. So, I mean, that's just, there's no, there's no competition. And you'll see policymakers talk a lot about broadband. They'll talk kind of nebulously about the digital divide. They'll talk about the importance of, you know, getting everybody connected. But uh, politicians on neither side of the aisle really are very often eager to single out the fact that monopolization is at the heart of the problem. You know, we've let these companies dominate the market. There's no real competition to hold them accountable. Well, simultaneously, these same companies have been engaged in a 25, 30 year effort to remove most meaningful regulatory oversight. I know they would, they would argue con uh, to the contrary and claim that they're heavily regulated and the government is highly involved in their businesses. But I mean, over the, over the past 20, 30 years, we've, stripped away oversight and without eating neither oversight nor functional competition, you know, the end result has become obvious. I think everybody who's experienced like five minutes on hold with Comcast knows what the end result <laughs> is. It's not, you know, so, so, so that's, so that's the groundwork. And, and out of, out of that frustration from American consumers has bubbled up this kind of town by town, truly bipartisan effort to build something better, you know, either, either in the form of a municipality building its own broadband network or, a local cooperative, as you see in North Dakota, or public-private partnerships, or the city, you know, taking what it's learned from running its own electricity utility and migrating that knowledge to the broadband sector. You know, there's all these interesting innovations going on, but they're happening, um, you know, on the back of really frustrated and very pissed off people scattered all over the country building really incredible things. And, um, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so let's let's talk about that. I mean, you know, so and the paper gets into this as well, you know, starting with this idea of like a, a lot of municipalities um, or local communities sort of setting up their own smaller providers. 
Um, and you know that's been going on for for a long time, right? I mean, there have been examples going back a few decades now of of these kind of municipal broadband uh, offerings. Um, and you know, so one of one of the complaints that we've heard, you know, from people who were against that. Um, and, and we can get into kind of the state law issue at some point soon uh, about some of these things is that, you know, this is, you know, government competition against the, the you know, private sector and that, um, you know, it, it could be, you know, it's tough to, to run a broadband provider. And if you're a small broadband provider, you don't necessarily have the economies of scale. And therefore, it is a waste of taxpayer money. Um that you know isn't needed, uh, and that the you know sort of the market can provide for it. What is the sort of response to that? So there's a there's a couple of problems. One is that the current regulatory model in U.S. telecom involves throwing billions upon billions of dollars at entrenched local monopolies under the promise that they will build out fiber networks. And you can look, I can, you know, I've written about this industry for 22 years. And I've literally lost track of the instances where a big regional telecom provider has provided billions of dollars. And in exchange for that, they deliver half of a network or a quarter <laughs> of a network. And then they get sued or, you know, the regulatory authority that overlooks them gets lobbied to forget that it happened. And we just rinse and repeat this cycle where we throw billions in taxpayer subsidies at these companies for, for under delivering and underproducing quality broadband. You know, so and the, the industry itself will argue that community broadband is just this inherent boondoggle, you know, but these are just, these are, these are, these are creative business approaches, just like any other business approach. If the underlying structural foundation of the plan is okay, it'll be okay. If the people running it are competent and are, you know, trustworthy, you're going to have a better result. There's no, just because the government gets involved doesn't inherently mean that the government's going to take strict control of the network or that it's going to be some kind of taxpayer hellscape. You know, that's, that's a lot of rhetoric that the industry likes to use to kind of scare people away from the concepts. And again, you can see through electrification that a lot of towns have had ample success building their own energy utilities. Right. And the fiber that they've used to power and connect and understand and analyze and support those networks can often easily be migrated to residential and business and enterprise broadband services. Um, so, and, and, yeah. and if, if it feels like to me, at least um, that, you know, really over the past two decades where we've had these examples and, and there have been some failures, but it's, it feels like many of the failures were kind of early on and the more recent projects, you know, have really learned from the failures and, and actually show how to do this in a in a much more reasonable fashion, and it is, you know, providing what the market has not provided in this example, and often they're they're set up as sort of you know public private partnerships in a way, you know, and and you know to some extent too, like you, I mean, you mentioned all the subsidies that are being thrown at the at the big guys, you know, to me, like how is that all that different, right? Right. <laughs> then, right. Exactly. You know, that, right. that is, that is taxpayer money going to you know, these it, big giant companies, which are, and, and having it thrown away. Whereas the, the smaller community based broadband proposals, you know, a lot of them are, are really, are not even, you know, some of them certainly use taxpayer money, but a lot of them don't, um, no, and right. really, you know, really designed to be sort of set up as, as functional, 
sustainable businesses. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I mean, there's a, again, there's a huge variety of funding models and mechanisms and network builds and options. And it's not, you know, it's often formed as this, you know, monolithic concept of government, you know, government's coming in to build a network and that's bad, but it's not that simple. You know, there's so many different options. And I think you'll, you'll find probably 90% of the time when you find somebody complaining about how government broadband is just this automatic boondoggle, those same people are oddly not going to mention you know, the massive subsidy fraud and waste that has involved throwing these billions of dollars at monopolies. So if we're going to spend money on this stuff, the question then is, what is the most productive way to spend that money? And so that's a whole other conversation, given the, you know, the massive incoming funds that are coming through the COVID relief bill and the infrastructure bill. I think there's about 50 plus billion dollars uh, headed out to the states right now as we speak, who are then going to have to determine what's the best way to spend those money that money and, and, and is, is the best way to spend that money giving it to Comcast and AT&T who have pretty significant histories of not fully delivering what they promise or is or are there other options and yeah. who determines that so so it's an interesting concept and I, I have to say again that the idea that these networks are you know partisan in any way it just isn't, isn't true um, you know, most municipal broadband networks are built in conservative cities. There's broad bipartisan support for a lot of these efforts. Um, I think there's an effort, longstanding effort to frame this as partisan to kind of sow a little bit of dissent on the part of the telecom monopolies because they don't want people kind of uh, encroaching on their power systems that they've developed over years. But, you know, these really are very creative local uh, local networks that have been kind of demonized and dismissed as an alternative. You'll see in government policy a lot that it's, again, on both sides of the aisle, you won't see community broadband or these cooperatives or these other options really even discussed half the time. It's and, just considered a non-starter. Yeah. And, and you know, again, like getting back to this idea of like, you know, when there is like these, these infrastructure spending or, or whatever, like, the ability of a small community to sort of figure out what they need, you know, it, yeah. you know, having, having it go out to that community that really understands its own needs as opposed to a Comcast or, yeah. you know, whoever yeah. else, you know, AT&T or whoever, um, it, it, it seems like, you know, hopefully the community knows better. And, and again, at this point there have been enough, you know, examples and enough, you know, case studies that people can look at of how to build one of these things successfully and to provide, you know, services and competition where it didn't exist before. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the analysis for how these networks have functioned, you've got Chattanooga, which is kind of held out as like a poster child for how it's done, Yep. Um, which has consistently been ranked one of the fastest um, and least expensive broadband providers in the country with the best customer service. And that's, you know, you, you see these rankings pretty repeatedly show that these these community broadband networks have a vested interest in the local community. They're usually staffed by people who live in those communities. Right. As opposed, it's, it's not like Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, and these big names can't provide decent broadband. You know, mm -hmm. in many, many cities they do if they're kind of incentivized through competition. But at the same time, they're kind of operating under an extractive model. They don't genuinely care about the welfare of the neighborhoods they serve. I mean, they'll, they'll say they do, of course. As opposed to some local city who who genuinely wants to attract business talent, has a vested interest in the city, whole city, you know, uh, rising up through through constructive network builds that kind of foster innovation and local businesses and things of this nature. So, I, I think there was a Harvard study that showed they also 
generally provide lower prices at more transparent pricing. There's less incentive to like nickel and dime the consumers because if you live in the city that you serve, uh, serve with broadband, you're going to get an earful at the local <laughs> diner from people who get a little pissed off, which is something that would be helpful for Comcast to hear more often than they do. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's funny because I remember actually uh, a friend of mine trying to convince me to move to Chattanooga and, and like the, the uh, municipal broadband fiber network was one of the main selling points. It's just like, we yeah. have, we have, you know, the fastest internet access you can possibly get. And we're like trying to, you know, we're attracting all these kinds of entrepreneurs and there's going to be like a new tech boom because of this. And it becomes like a selling point for, for the city. Um, and, and you know, you're not going to get that with like Comcast is here. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really, it's really excited people all over the country. I've, I've kind of shifted my focus this year because I spent so long just writing about monopolization and federal dysfunction and it was getting kind of mm-hmm. fatig- fatiguing to use a polite word. Uh, so starting this year, I, I started literally interacting with a different town or city or tribe pretty much every week this year. Mm-hmm. Like every week uh, I've been doing some writing for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which, you know, focuses on alternatives to monopoly power. And so pretty much every single week uh, this year, I've talked to a different town, city or tribe, and every single one of them almost to a person cites that Chattanooga build as really, truly inspiring and something they want to want to work towards. And, and again, there's there's alternatives. There's alternative builds too. Chattanooga isn't an open access network, which for right. people listening basically means that you build a core underlying network and then the city or town or somebody else controls that network and invites multiple ISPs in to compete over that network. So the core infrastructure then has six or seven ISPs that you can all competing against each other for lower prices and customer service. And that drives down prices that improves service quality. Um, you know, data, data has shown there's been several studies over the past couple decades that have shown that this really works around the world to improve uh, network quality and speeds and lower prices. And, you know, fairly consistently, federal regulators have kind of ignored it because they're not really willing to challenge the status quo or these big regional monopolies. And so, so let's let's dig in there a little bit, just because uh, that is kind of like the focus of the paper. Uh, you know, the stuff we've been talking about is sort of, to some extent, preamble, right? But the 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 focus of the paper is this idea of the the open access fiber model. And I want to make sure. I, I know you just described it, but I want to make sure that that listeners who aren't as you know deeply engaged in the space mm-hmm. really understand what that means. And it is this concept that you you have you can separate the network layer from the service layer at the simplest level, right? You have that, that core, like, you know, the hardware, the actual fiber and, and the, 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 the parts of the, the network itself, the, the physical hardware that makes up the network and that exists. And then you can have a separate ability for, you know, multiple service providers to then provide service over that hardware. And so you, you then enable sort of competition at the service level and, and not that, you know, for, you know, for the longest time, many of us have always thought of broadband competition, meaning you have to install another network, right? You have, your, you know, for a while there's like the DSL versus cable, now cable versus fiber, whatever. Um, and so it was always about like this, these huge capital expenditure problems or issues um, and very difficult for there to be competition because it's so expensive to build out another network and you have sort of the natural monopoly problems or whatever. But the idea with the open access model is that, you know, you don't have to rebuild 
for every service provider, you don't have to rebuild that entire network. You have the network and you can just have different different service providers providing service and it can be very differentiated service with on that same network. Um, and you know, the, the idea is you can open it up and, and allow anyone to compete. And, and, you know, to be honest, like, you know, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> so I, I remember like, this is the way dial up was to some extent, yeah. not exactly, yeah. but, but, you know, when, when I first got online, I had a dial up account and, and I had a list of like, you know, there were thousands of different dial-up uh, ISPs that I could I could make use of, and you know, you just goes and they were in alphabetical order, and you start going down the list. You know, you're going to sign up with ABC Internet Access or whatever, and yep, and yep. they weren't building their own network at any point. They were always, um, you know, the whole point was that they. Um, you know, that they were using the existing AT&T network or whatever it was. And so, you know, the, this is this, you know, and that model went away, right? That was the, the, you know, that disappeared once, once we got to sort of the broadband layer. So this idea of like an open access model, I think is exciting to me because I remember what that was like when you had all these different choices for, for internet access. Yeah, I think I think if listeners want to understand it, it's probably good to Google uh, uh, Amon Idaho. I think it's pronounced Amon A M M O N. They've developed they've developed an open access uh, broadband network, and I think they have six or seven ISPs. And it's all managed a lot through software. You know, like there's the core fiber network, and then a lot of new new uh, sophisticated software based technologies allow you to literally switch ISPs with a click of a button through a web portal. You know, which yeah. is incredible. Um, and you're, uh, there's a lot of European countries that have explored this model as well, and they've had they've had good success. And I, I don't I don't like to claim that it's like a panacea for everything sure. that ails broadband. Community broadband is not a one size fits all solution, but you have to embrace a lot of these niche solutions because they are an organic grassroots response to market failure. Um, you know, if I'm a Comcaster in AT and T, I could I could put this to bed very quickly by offering better, faster, cheaper service. Um, and the problem a lot of these communities have run into is that these big ISPs haven't done that. Instead, they've taken the least uh, less expensive route, which is generally lobbying lawmakers to oppose community broadband efforts, however creative, or even passing, I think, in the case of somewhere between 17 and 20 uh, state laws restricting the building of these networks, the expansion of these networks. Chattanooga, for example, which we talked about, is prohibited by Tennessee law to expand beyond the footprint of its existing energy utility for no reason other than the fact that AT&T and other big companies lobbied the state legislature to restrict its growth. Um, yeah. Usually, and, and, and again, under, again, under the boogeyman that this is socialism, government run amok sort of <laughs> stuff, you know what I mean? It's, it gets people at term. As soon as you hear the word socialist, there's a contingent that they're targeting that they know are, are going to yeah. you know, turn their brain off a little bit and get angry, and, and, which is a shame because these truly are innovative block by block creative solutions to the problem that we're kind of not yeah. fully utilizing. Yeah. And, and, and I want to, I just, I, I, I want to go back and just put an exclamation point on that because I, it was a point I wanted to raise and I'm glad you did, but I just want to emphasize it. Like Chattanooga, the example that we were talking about that everybody is inspired by and everybody talks about how it's been this great setup and it's worked so well and it's become this sort of point of pride for the city and it has attracted businesses and and individuals to move to Chattanooga in order to get this great broadband. The state of Tennessee put a law in place forbidding them from expanding. 
which mm-hmm. is like yeah. y- y- it's it's this incredible success story that the state is blocking from doing more. And, and, and the that, great irony, the yeah. great irony of those bills is that they're usually passed under the pretense that they're just very concerned about taxpayers, you know, right. not wasting money. While at the same time, with their other hand, they're gobbling up billions in tax breaks and subsidies and regulatory favors, all in the the promise that they're going to build the fiber networks they've promised they would finish twenty years ago, uh, yeah. offer more jobs to communities, uh, and and the promises just don't materialize. They just yeah. don't. And so again, it comes back to the fact that if you're going to spend billions of dollars, where are you going to spend it? We've, tr- we've tried this model of throwing countless untold billions at regional monopolies, and you can see the result. It's been, we've been doing this for 25 years. It's not subtle. There's not a lot of room left for debate about it. Um, yeah, we can still subsidize them in some areas where they need it, but I mean, it just hasn't worked. And this is an organic grassroots response to it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so the other thing, you know, I, I want to go back to, and, and again, you mentioned it, but I just want to emphasize it. And this is sort of like, you know, it's, it's highlighted in the paper and it's, it's really well explained. And I think it's, it's a really great example is the, the Ammon Idaho example, like just to repeat, like the idea is like, there's a portal and you can go there and you can see all the different broadband providers and this is where the title of the paper comes from, this just a click away idea, you know, the ability to just switch your broadband provider, just, you know, you know, go to a web page, see the different services you can have, you know, basically see their pitch and then click and say, like, I want, I want this as my service is a, is a different world for many of us, right? I mean, like this idea, yeah, like yeah. right now, if for most people, if you want to switch your broadband provider, it is a huge hassle, right? And you know that it's going to like upset things where you might not have service for a day or two, or like you have to have people come out, you have to install new hardware, you have to do all of these different things. And that actually, you know, that works to the incumbent's advantage because people don't want to, you know, if my broadband is working, I don't want to mess with that. (laughs) Especially, especially because they bundled TV and phone and everything else into that. So if you're going to change, assuming you can change broadband provider in the first place to do it is a hassle, you know? Um, So, yeah. But but yeah but but that I think that the visual of seeing the 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 portal the Ammon Idaho uh, portal where you can just you literally see the different offers like I I you know I agree like the, it, it, I'm not saying that it is it solves all the problems but like what a different world we would live in if that was if everybody had access to that sort of thing where you could you yeah. know you could see and and so not only then are you dealing with different service providers competing for your business, which is is step one is great, but like it's actually competing in a really transparent way, which has a whole bunch of, I think, you know, side benefits. One is like, it encourages the companies to, you know, try to provide better service and out innovate each other or offer something that differentiates it because they have to stand out. Right. And it should be noted that this doesn't have to exclude incumbent broadband providers. Of course. You know, you build this network and they're going to have discount access to this network as well. So if they truly want to come in here and compete, they're welcome to come in. You know, we hear a lot of lip service about, you know, the great American tradition of competition. And these networks are saying, here you are. Here's your opportunity to show that you're going to provide better service. Um, And I've seen a lot of, I've talked to, for example, Fort Pierce, Florida Mm -hmm. uh, earlier. A couple of months ago, I talked to them. They're exploring a multi-million dollar uh, open access broadband network. And they're kind of, a, they were inspired both by uh, Amon Idaho and they were inspired by Chattanooga at the same time. And, um, you know, 
again, that's a local community that just was really tired of substandard service. And I think it's it's important to reiterate how COVID really changed the game on a lot mm-hmm. of this thinking. You know, broadband, U.S. broadband has always been mediocre and people generally understood it. But it took it took the home education boom of COVID and the home telecommuting boom of COVID for a lot of people to really understand how essential broadband has become in our lives. And so, I, you know, that the, the concerns and annoyance <laughs> during the COVID lockdown stretch, I think, drove a level of policy engagement that I've never seen right. in 20 years of writing about the industry. Um, people were very pissed off. And so I think, uh, and that, and, you know, I think federal government broadband policy in this country is a bit of a mess, telecom uh, related, especially on consumer protection and like anti-monopolization and even acknowledging that monopolies exist. I think it's a mess and I think it has been for 30 years. But at the same time, the COVID relief and infrastructure bills are bringing about 50 billion plus dollars to solve a lot of these problems. Right. And they are also trying to fix, you know, FCC broadband maps that have historically, you know, overstated coverage and speeds. They're, they're, they're literally trying to do some things to finally, you know, accurately measure the scope of America's broadband gaps and drive money at where it needs to go uh, through the states. You know, I, that's going to create a whole bunch of issues, but it's also a wonderful potential for a lot of these towns and cities who were pissed off during COVID um, to build better more resilient, uh, less expensive broadband networks. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there, there is, there's something that feels kind of ironic, right. To like the, the arguments about this and, and this idea of like the, the municipal broadbands being against free market competition, capitalism, however you want to refer to it. And yet, you know, where, you know, especially the ones that have the open access fiber, model where you see like that's actual competition happening and you're seeing the kinds of like you know the things that you know the free market are supposed to provide where different companies are differentiating and providing different levels of service and and you you're not getting you know suckered into into bad deals and so it strikes me in this weird you know sort of semi-ironic way i guess that this (laughs) this solution that everyone that that critics are saying is you know is you know, oh, government interference and socialism and against the free market is actually much more, you know, I, I think true to the idea of, of the free market where you actually have this this competitive market happening and innovation occurring because people are trying yeah. to differentiate their services. And so yeah. it's, you know, it uh, th- that's frustrating to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And I think, I think it's in the uh, telecom monopoly's best interest to have people with a simplistic concept of what government or municipal community broadband really is you know they they, they very much want to frame it as uh, socialist government run amok stuff because that's an easy way to get it to stop people to stop supporting it yeah but the reality is it, it it represents all the ideals that those same people claim they support from you know consistent competition to local small businesses uh to uh innovation uh, you see it. I've talked to these communities. I've talked to countless communities this year, and they are all doing some amazing, interesting things. And tribal tribal leaders are doing amazing things. You know, they're building mm-hmm. their own networks. Tribe, tribal areas in this country have been overlooked for decades in terms right. of broadband access. You know, like uh, we we build, they would build fiber networks that skirted right up next to the university in parts of Arizona. And just when they got to tribal land, they just say, oh, 
too much of a hassle to negotiate with, you know, these sovereign populations. And they would just take a big sharp detour to the left and fire <laughs> go right down the line. And the tribe would sit there unconnected for decades, you know. Hmm. And so the, the tribes too are, are finally frustrated, especially by COVID, um, took it to a next level. And they, they're building their own broadband networks all over the place in states like Washington and states like Arizona and states like, I think, New Mexico. Um, they t- they finally got fed up and they're 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 innovating they're they're right. into their own hands you know right. I don't know what I don't know what represents truly innovative open markets better than local communities and businesses taking it into their own hands so yeah and and I mean you know it's interesting too I mean you mentioned the idea that like the incumbents are have every ability to you know when we're talking about the open access model the incumbents have the ability to provide services over that network as well if they want. Um, but just in general, what we've seen, and I know you've written about this a bunch, is that you know when these municipal broadband competitors pop up, it does lead to improved service from the incumbents and better yeah. prices from the incumbents. So it's like, again, yeah. competition actually works and, and is, you know, feels more free markety than, yeah. than, than, you know, letting them just be the, the monopoly player. And again, instead of competing, you know, first off, a lot of these monopolies could have avoided the problem just by improving their networks, offering better service to more places at lower prices. So they complain a lot about community broadband, but their very first step to, to, uh, you know, slowing its expansion in this country is just providing people what they want. Right. Because without (laughs) again, without regulatory and competitive pressure, they haven't really been forced to do that. They really enjoy regional. You know, again, 83 million people live under a broadband monopoly. We're like, usually Comcast is their only provider. Right. Um, but instead of doing that, a lot of these providers passed state laws that restricted the growth of these networks. They sued them. Ultimately, when they've exhausted all these, you know, uh, kind of tilting the playing field options, they'll they'll usually say, okay, well, we'll have to compete and they will lower their $150 fiber service to $70 to match the competition. Right. It can take five to 10 year, years of <laughs> complaints and lawsuits to get to that point. But that I've, I've seen it happen. Like in Chattanooga, for example, um, which was built because they were frustrated with the local service of companies like Comcast. Comcast ultimately, after trying to sue it into oblivion and supporting a state law, preventing it from expanding, finally a few years ago said, okay, here's $70 gigabit fiber service. Um, <laughs> and it took, it took a while, but they got there, you know. So even I think it, I think it's also it, even even beyond just the fact that these networks are interesting innovation they 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 do provide motivation, right? You know the 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 mere threat of them provides motivation to monopolies to try harder, and that's been something that's been really lacking in a lot of these, thanks to our one-two punch of limited competition and captured regulators. Yeah, and and um, you know, and I mentioned in the opening, right? Sort of like the connection between this and net neutrality, like. You know, I don't think we necessarily got too much into this in the paper, and it's, it's maybe a little off topic, but I think it is important to just kind of mention, you know, this idea that like, you know, the the concern over net neutrality feels like it it diminishes. It may not go away, but it diminishes when you have that that kind of real competition, because yeah. you know, then you have you know, the generally that local provider is not going to you know, not going to do the kinds of things that we're concerned about that require net neutrality in terms of, you know, basically messing with your connection. Um, And, and then in the same way that like it forces, 
Comcast to, to offer a better price, a much more reasonable and much more competitive price, it also forces those companies not to try and mess around with, you know, trying to zero rate services or, or otherwise, you know, limit kinds of kinds of, you know, internet access. Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, I do think you need a competent consumer watchdog that's going to like, you know, crack down on companies that are being exploitative or ripping people off with hidden fees, which I don't really think we have in this country. Right? Mm-hmm. Canada doesn't really either. You know, you have to look over to some European countries to see regulators that actually take action when an ISP is ripping you off with bogus fees every month and things like that. But at the same time, I, I do think the whole net neutrality debate, while important, became kind of a distraction mm-hmm. and a confusing one that put a lot of people to sleep. You know, it's elaborate policy considerations of, you know, uh, trying to rein. Uh, to, to me, net neutrality was basically a stopgap, mm-hmm. imperfect effort to control monopoly power. Um, and if you have actual threats to monopoly power, such as competition, you're going to have less anti-competitive behavior. You, 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 you just are. Um, so I, I agree. I agree completely that competition is the the balm for this. You know, it's it's it would solve a lot of the problems that net neutrality was meant to address. And um, to 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 get back to the the open access issue, um, you know. Are there, are there other countries that that have sort of embraced that? Are there other places where the open access model is 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 seen on a on a you know not necessarily just on the small scale but at a wider wider scale? Uh, Switzerland had success with it, I think. You know, there's of course Australia, which had mixed results with their efforts to implement it. New Zealand had some decent success. Uh, France took our you know we we in the 90s we tried to push we tried to force broadband providers to open up their their networks and share them with competitors. And it didn't, not only was it not particularly well implemented, it was quickly dismantled by lobbyists, but countries like France took that idea. Um, And one of my favorite things is watching somebody go to France and look at the broadband and TV and phone prices and then come back and realize (laughs) what the United States is like. You can get, you know, you can get 300 megabit per second service TV and broadband and phone service, I think for like $50 a month in Mm. Paris. Um, so you come back here and most Americans are paying probably three or four times that for the same right. service. We've completely, dis- monopolies have been allowed to completely distort uh, the value equation here. And it's been a sustained campaign to right. convince everybody that that's how it just is. It's just how it is. And it's okay. And broadband is actually secretly, you know, you'll see constant countless <laughs> industry studies about how U.S. broadband is secretly really competitive. And we're secretly <laughs> really one of the best in the world. And consumers have it really good. And it's just not supported by the facts if you dig through, you know, anywhere below a near surface level. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, so... You know, in in the areas where it's had trouble, I mean, you, you mentioned Australia briefly. I know that, like, you know, Australia had a really ambitious plan initially um, to to build out fiber, uh, you know, across the entire country, um, and that's had sort of mixed results, as you know. Like, do you know sort of why? Like, what what happened there? Why was that not as you know the the original plan sounded wonderful from like what was laid out, um, and then sort of. I think it kind of disintegrated to some extent. Do you, do you want to just talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, uh, a lot of it had to do with politics, quite honestly. I think they started with grand ambitions. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, over the years, it just got eroded and eroded and eroded. Industry does not want competition. Mm-hmm. The broadband industry will stop at absolutely any length in any country 
to prevent meaningful competition from coming coming through. So I think that played a pretty big role in it. I'm not sure um, there was the, all the folks involved were entirely competent, which again, like I said, these are not miracle cures. You're not just right. going to build an open access network and magic pours out of the sidewalks and everyone rejoices in the streets. It requires competent planning. It requires competent leadership. It's not always going to be the solution for every town and city because every town and city operates differently, has different restrictions, has different levels of competition. Um, so I think, you know, when you try to do like a wholesale countrywide approach, I don't think it's going to work. Mm. A, because the entrenched incumbent monopolies are going to outlaw you every single time. They have so much money and so much influence. And here in the United States, they're literally tethered to our intelligence gathering and <laughs> law enforcement systems. And the government is not incentivized to stand up to companies that are literally part of government. So right. you have this, you know, you have this conflict of interest. So I don't think it's realistic that in the United States, you could impose a countrywide open access network. I just don't, you know, I don't think it's possible. But I think like we're going to find a lot in the United States over the next 20 to 30 years, local people empowered to make local decisions for themselves, highly customized to what they need. is going to be a more practical uh, path forward. Right. So, so um, do you think that like, you know, from, from a policy perspective, what is, what is the way to get to more of this happening? Like, is it just that, that local communities basically need to embrace this on a, on a one-off basis? Is there any sort of federal component to this or state component yeah, I, to this? I think, I think the FCC has it right in that they're finally after 30 years of underestimating broadband overestimating broadband coverage. They're finally improving the broadband maps. I think just simply yeah. knowing where we do and do not have broadband is step one. And they're doing it right now. Those maps are supposed to, the new updated maps are supposed to be out this fall. I'm writing a story right now about how some people are not entirely sure it's going <laughs> to fix the problem. <laughs> and there's already some gamesmanship going on to 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 uh, play with definitions of what constitutes a served area, advertised speeds versus the actual speed you can get. There's a lot of fisticuffs going on there. So I think mapping it is the first step. Getting money to these areas is the first step. You know, the infrastructure bill passes money through the uh, NTIA to the states. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the states then have to develop a local, you know, system and administration system to use those funds intelligently. So I think that has forced states to say, okay, where, where do we really have problems? Um, and, you know, the problem there, again, will be corruption and regulatory capture because there are being billions of dollars are being thrown at a lot of states. Right. And the states that are a little bit too much under AT&T's thumb are going to obviously throw more of that money at the local monopoly and say that's mission accomplished. Um, so I, I think mapping is important. I think funding is important. And I think COVID really, you know, finally changed that. Um, and I think just getting out of the way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, no, these state laws that restrict community broadband are some of the dumbest, most restrictive things I've ever seen. You know, they don't, they don't, if you were to, if you were to, you know, poll the public, they don't want those laws. They don't, right. they, it makes no coherent sense, you know, and again, they're justified under the pretense that it's about protecting taxpayers, but that is clearly not really high on our priority when we're talking about telecom right. monopolies, if we're being honest. So yeah, mapping, um, yeah, and showing communities the way. Right now, they're kind of all operating in these weird little ad hoc vacuums talking to each other. You know, uh, there's a lot of people trying to connect them. Did you talk to these guys over here in Florida? And Florida's trying to talk to Montana. Montana, you know, it'd be nice to have more federal coordination. And I'm not right. even sure community broadband, it was briefly mentioned during the whole infrastructure 
to do. You know, it, it was it was brought up. But again, there's there's right. really there's there's a consistent theme where we don't want to upset our big monopoly providers and and show and on the federal level showing too much support for community broadband or challenging them in any serious way is kind of forbidden. Um, and I think that needs to stop because these really are very innovative local solutions. And they're not again. They're not. They're not again a panacea. I, I just would reiterate again that these are not miracle yeah. cures for anything. They're hard to build. You need competent people. You need funding. You need a good business plan. You need the support of local voters. It's hard. It's hard work. It's hard, dirty digging trenches for fiber and expanding right. in these areas. It's hard work. And the monopolies should be commended because they have built a good basic foundation. Right. But that foundation needs supplemental work now. And the approach we've taken historically over the last 30 years is not working anymore. We need more creative options and these local communities are the ones that are building them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I think, and, and, and I hope that like, you know, for the communities that are taking it seriously and, and doing it thoughtfully, you know, there's more and more lessons to, to learn from others who have been successful. And I think that hopefully, you know, more and more people begin to, to recognize. And it's part of the reason why, you know, we wanted this paper just to, get this out there and to, to increase the discussion because we're, we're seeing it, you know, starting to crop up in certain places, but it feels like a moment where there's a real opportunity for people to embrace it yeah. and to, and to figure out if, if it, if it makes sense for their community. Yeah. Um, and they're not, the, the people I talk to working on these efforts are not interested in ob- obfuscating the warts or the failures, right. you know, they really genuinely want to learn how to do this. You know, I, I, there have been failures in that front. There have been municipal efforts right. that were boondoggles. But I think in a lot of instances, people genuinely wanted to learn from them and they've come out of them with better ideas of how to uh, reasonably expand access in the most cost efficient way possible. You cool. know? So it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing lesson. It's an, it's an evolution. And I don't think we should be uh, demonizing it and marginalizing <laughs> it and everything we've been doing over the last 20 years and passing state laws restricting it. That's just silly. Cool. Well, uh, again, uh, if you want to read Carl's paper, we just released it, uh, this week. It's, you know, it's, you can find it on TechTurd or on the Copia website. And, uh, it is called just a click away broadband competition in America. And it goes over all of this in a lot more detail and has graphics. It has, has images. You can see what the, the Ammon Idaho setup is, which I think is, is really, it's like, you know, one of those situations where that, that image is, is worth a thousand words, you know, as they say, where, where it's, you know, it's just really clear where you're like, Hey, this would be amazing if this were how I got to pick, pick broadband access. A better, a better future is possible. You don't have to have just one ISP. Yeah. 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 And just, yeah, just that idea of like actually embracing competition, I think is, is such a powerful idea. So anyways, uh, Carl, again, thanks so much. I mean, you know, for putting together this paper, I know how hard you worked on it. Um, and I think it's, it's an amazing paper. It's, it's great. I hope lots of people read it. I hope that communities get inspired by it. I hope policymakers get inspired by it and people really, you know, take it to heart. Um, so thank you so much for, for writing it and, uh, and all the work you put into it. And thanks for, for coming on the podcast and talking about it. Okay. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure thing. And thanks everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back. Someone will get, huh, to grab a shovel and think of the cat, huh, to grab a shovel and think